Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 4. And we will begin in verse 1. You'll find that on page 982 in the Pew Bible in front of you. And if you do not have a Bible, we would love for you to take the one in front of you. as our gift to you that you might have a copy of God's Word. And as is our custom, we're just going to work our way through the passage before us. So I encourage you, even though the words will be on the screen, that you have the Word of God out in your lap so that you might follow along as this perpetual reminder this morning that what you are hearing is not man's words, but God's Word. And so God, let it help us as we consider your Word. You'll notice here in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 1, we'll begin. Please hear now the Word of God. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Father, we love you and we thank you for your word this morning, which we can come and consider. I trust you want to speak to us through it in the intercession of your Holy Spirit. We ask that he would come now. We pray that he is present. We know that he is. We know even as your word has just told us, you are near to us. And so we rejoice in your nearness this morning. And we pray to you that you would come and help us to hear you. We believe, Father, that this would be a waste of our time this morning. If you, by your Spirit, do not come and speak, your people need to hear from you. And so help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It was on January 17, in 1994, at 4.30 in the morning and 55 seconds, that my bed began to shake violently as the earth quaked 61 miles north of where I was sleeping and living in Northridge, California. It was an earthquake that registered on the Richter scale of a 6.7. It had the highest ground acceleration of any recorded earthquake. And at least up to that point, I don't know if it's been passed, but it was the most costly earthquake ever to hit civilization. Praise the Lord that it happened in the middle of the night as many freeways just fell and collapsed under the shaking of this earthquake. And though uh, 72 were killed and 9,000 were injured, it could have been far, far higher. Earthquakes are interesting things. Growing up in Southern California, um, you get somewhat used to them. Uh, you get used uh, maybe three or four times a year for the earth to begin to shake under your feet. And it's just part of life living out there. But there's always in the back of your mind, is this what we Californians call the big one? Is this the one that we have been told of since grade school that is going to send California deep into the Pacific Ocean? And, and so your sense of stability shakes. You think the ground should give you a sense of comfort, a sense of stability. When it begins to shake, that stability vanishes. Of course, earthquakes are not the only things that shake us. Trials and difficulties and hardships also shake us. Unwelcome diagnosis, an uncomfortable conversation with your boss, 
financial trouble, sometimes national events shake us, perhaps a, a school tragedy or a troubling court decision. And the devil even gets on this act. Jesus would tell Peter in Luke chapter 22, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, might shake you, might rob you of your sense of stability. Circumstances do this. They shake us. They challenge us at times to put our hope in God, to continue to trust in Him in the midst of hardship. It is for this reason that I think the Bible frequently encourages us to stand firm. The Bible tells us in 2 Thessalonians, in chapter 2, for instance, So then, brothers, stand firm. Or in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 16, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Or Galatians chapter 5, stand firm therefore and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Or Ephesians 6 famously says, be strong in the Lord, in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm. And even here in our text that we'll consider this morning. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 1. We are encouraged, as you see at the end of that verse, to stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. We're to stand firm. And I think one way in which we as Christians can stand firm in the midst of hardship and difficulties and uncertainties is that God has revealed His truth to us. And it is the truth of who God is and what He has done and what He will do that enables us to endure these times, to stand firm, not to be shaken. Perhaps you, Christian, have wondered how it is that those who do not share your faith in Christ and the resurrection He has secured through His own, you wonder how it is that they face the death of loved ones. How is it that they actually get through those great tragedies without the hope that we have? You see, it's the truth that God, of God that is revealed to us that enables us to have stability in the midst of chaos. It enables us to be able to refuse to give ourselves to despair or even anxiety. In fact, the truth of God, I think, leads to peace and leads to comfort and even leads to joy. We, when we started this study of the book of Philippians, we considered how the church was planted there in Acts chapter 16. And we saw that Paul and Silas went to Philippi and they were shortly thrown into prison there at midnight. And there, even in prison at midnight, they famously prayed and sang. They had this, even in the midst of incredible hardship, perhaps harder than anything you've had to go through, they had this stability that they even had this joy in the midst of it. It is this joy that Paul commends to us in verse 4 of our text. When he says, rejoice in the Lord always, again, I will say rejoice. Now the joy in which Paul is commending here in verse 4, in fact throughout the book of Philippians, is not this joy that is hinged to favorable circumstances in our life. Though we do have that joy. 
And sometimes as Christians, I think we get a little too spiritual and we, we minimize the joy that comes from good things and good times. My children have taught me about this kind of joy that is hinged on circumstances. When they filled with joy, say, Daddy, chase me, or, or Daddy, tickle me, or, or Daddy, throw me into the sky. And they love that. Well, I kind of love the throwing into the sky part, but uh, they, they find great joy in that. In fact, when I come home, my little two-year-old Ezekiel, if he's the first to greet me, he says, my daddy here. And he goes around announcing with great joy in his heart, my daddy here, my daddy here. And, and the Bible recommend, commends this joy to us. So do not think that this joy, maybe you might call it happiness, though I can show you a number of places the Bible calls it joy. This happiness or joy in favorable circumstances is, is not a biblical idea. In fact, do you realize that God commands you, or at least God's people back in the Old Testament, to feast? Isn't that extraordinary? He says at least three times a year, I want you to have a feast. Throw a party. Get together. Celebrate. God commands them to have these things. In fact, Deuteronomy 16 says, You shall keep the feast of booths seven days. You shall rejoice in your feast, your son and your daughter. For seven days you shall keep the feast to the Lord your God, because the Lord your God will, note this, bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands, so that you will be altogether joyful. You see that? God says at times, I am going to bless you. I'm going to uh, make you productive and fruitful so that you might be joyful. God wants you to know this joy that's dependent upon circumstances. He is no kill joy. He wants you to be pleased with what He gives you. He wants you to delight in that. And yet that joy that's based upon circumstances, which the Bible commends, is not, I don't believe, the joy in which Paul is calling for us here in verse 4. This is an enduring joy, isn't it? This is an unconditional joy. We know this because he says rejoice in the Lord. When? Always. Just not when things are good, but also when things are bad. This is a joy that does not leave us when life becomes hard. It's a joy that comes with us into the prison at midnight in Philippi. This is a joy that comes with you into the hospital. This is a joy that comes with you in the unemployment line. A joy that is with you always. Now let's be clear here. He's not saying, therefore, you cannot be sad. This is not a joy that wears a perpetual smile, ignoring the pain and hardship in which you face. The Bible says we can be sad and joyful at the same time. In fact, Jesus gave us an example, did he not? He who wept, the Bible says, had fullness of joy. Paul will say, weep with those who weep, and at the same time, we are to rejoice always. The Bible says, blessed are those who mourn. And so this is a joy that comes with us always. A joy that has no roots in circumstances. A joy that doesn't get better when things get better. Does not get worse when things get worse. No gift can improve it. As one pastor said, no terrorist can blow it up. No thief can steal it. No engineer can make it stronger. No artist can make it more beautiful. Or as Nehemiah put it, the joy of the Lord is your, you know what? Strength. That's right. Strength. We find stability. Endurance. The ability to stand firm. We find strength in this joy that God calls for. And yet it is so incredibly elusive, isn't it? It is rare. This joy that is not buffeted and beat up when life gets hard. 
I know this to be the case, for I do find this elusive. So I plan to preach to myself a little bit this morning. How is it that we can find this enduring joy? Where can we go to look for it? I believe Paul here in our text explains four places in which it can be found. Four places which we can find and look for this enduring joy. I look forward to considering them in turn with you. But before we do, I I want you to know why this is so important. Why is it that God commands us to be joyful? Why does God want this from us? It's one thing for Him to command us to trust Him, or another thing for Him to command us to hope in Him, or to even love Him. We understand that, don't we? But this command to be joyful, why? Well, I believe it is because God is glorified when you find your delight in Him. The same way a a soldier perhaps doesn't glorify or honor his country when he's just doing his duty. He honors his country when he's acting out of a love for country. Or the same way a, a husband doesn't honor his wife when he's simply just doing his duty, but he honors her when he finds his delight in her. Well, you, you will honor God when you find your delight in your God. In fact, I believe your quest for joy and your quest to honor and glorify God are not in conflict. They are, in fact, the same quest. That God is honored. God is glorified when you find joy in the Lord. I like what C.S. Lewis wrote. That God threatens terrible things if you will not be happy. God wants you to find joy in Him. And if you are seeking it truly and biblically, you will find it in God and glorify Him by doing so. So how do we find this enduring joy? Well, first, I think the Bible will commend us to consider the future. Notice verse 1 of our text. Therefore, he says, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I simply just want for a moment focus on that first word in verse 1. Therefore, he of course is referring to that which we have previously considered that we saw last week if you were here. In verse 20 when he says, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to his control. He says, because of these wonderful and incredible truths about what God will do when he comes for us, because our citizenship is in heaven, we can therefore, I believe, find this stability that he commends here in verse 1. I would commend to you, Christian, to consider heaven, to look to your future. The Bible in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1 says, set your mind on things above. In verse 2, I believe it says, set your heart on things above. What that means is to think about them. Not just simply to believe them and store them somewhere in the back of your head, but actually to ponder them, to consider them, to, to meditate on what God will bring when He comes to renew all things. You do this when you go on vacation, I think. Or if you're going someplace wonderful and exotic, perhaps a place you've never been before, you want to learn about that place, don't you? You want to know what it will be like there, what you will do, what, what, what you will eat, what you will wear, right? where you will stay. And you want to know all about the place in which you are going. It helps you to anticipate it and find delight in it. My, uh, some of my children are going to California in September. 
And so they're very excited about this trip and they want to know all about California. And I tell them it's like going to another country. It is so wonderful and scary all at the same time. And there's uh, beauty and weirdness and all sorts of excitement. And it's never dull there. In fact, my son is going to take surfing lessons out there in the Pacific Ocean. And he wants to know what is that like, Daddy, to be out in the Pacific Ocean and the waves and, and being on a surfboard. And he's thinking about it and they're pondering it and considering it. And they talk to each other about it. Well, should we not do the same for the place in which we are going? Therefore, Paul says, because of these wonderful truths, you are able to stand firm. I appreciate what the uh, theologian J.C. Ryle said. The man who's about to sail for Australia or New Zealand as a settler is naturally anxious to know something about his future home, its climate, its employments, its inhabitants, its ways, its customs. All these are the subjects of deep interest to him. You are leaving the land of your nativity. You are going to spend the rest of your life in a new hemisphere. It would be strange indeed if you did not desire information about your new abode. He continues saying, Now surely if we hope to dwell forever in that better country, even a heavenly one, we ought to seek all the knowledge we can get about it. Before we go to our eternal home, we should try to become acquainted with it. Elsewhere, Ryle would write, I pity the man who never thinks about heaven. I believe if you were more in awe of the place in which God is preparing you, what Jesus says, and I am going to prepare a place for you, if it were not so, would I told you that I am coming again to receive you unto myself, that where I am, you might be also. I am preparing some place for you. The more you consider it, the more in awe you become of it, the less the troubles of this world will impact you. The less you will find yourself buffeted and beat up by hardship and circumstances. We not only know this to be true from experience, the scripture affirms that saying in Romans 8 that I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I wonder if this is how Paul and Silas in that Philippian prison at midnight were able to not only to pray, praying makes sense if you're in prison at midnight, doesn't it? But seeing, that's kind of unusual. Don't you wish that the Bible would have recorded the song that they sang? What is it that they sang there at midnight, not knowing what the sunrise would bring to them? That's one of my questions I'm going to ask Paul when I meet him. Sing me the song, Paul, that you sang in that Philippian jail. And I wonder, I I just kind of wonder, I don't know, I don't have any insight, but if it was their equivalent of maybe when we all get to heaven, or maybe they sang about the sweet by and by, or maybe they sang that I am bound for the promised land. Paul says, consider the future to find your stability. This must be an active pondering, friends. It's not simply a belief that you store away. It is something that you, you consider and meditate upon in order to gain perspective on the troubles in which you find yourself in. Well, secondly, Paul says that we can find this enduring joy, enduring joy by seeking unity within our faith family. Look again at verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I was teaching this passage to my children last night during our family worship, and I, and I asked them, What does Paul think about this church? Does he love them? And they went on and on about how much Paul must have loved them. And you see there in verse 1, it's kind of, he's kind of gushing over the top, isn't he? It's almost uncomfortable. You think, get a hold of yourself, Paul. He says, I love you. And not only do I love you, but I, but I long for you. In fact, he said that as much when he began this letter, saying, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. 
I love and long for you. This is what the gospel does, I believe, when rightly understood. It ignites a love and a longing for the church, for the fellowship of Christians in community. He goes on and says, you are my joy and my crown. I find my great joy in you and my delight in you. In fact, you are my crown. And when he says that, he does not refer to the diadem which a king would wear, but the laurel wreath in which a champion would wear. Once again, Paul's returning us to the games, isn't he? And he's saying, my brothers and sisters are the prize for which I am running. You see, Paul understood that his faith in Christ was not for his own individual gain, but it was for the gain of his siblings in Christ who God had brought him into fellowship with. And he sees them as his joy. He sees them as his crown, those who he loves and longs for. The question I think this verse therefore raises for you is are these people in this room your love? Are these the ones you long for? Do you see your crown here sitting next to you? Your source of joy. Paul says, this is my joy. In fact, how often have you encountered, and I have, people, especially when beset by sadness and depression, the first things they do is they withdraw themselves, don't they? They isolate themselves. They draw the curtains in this dark, isolated realm. And in doing so, I believe they are actually cutting themselves off from the wellspring of joy in which God has intended the church to be to one another. The church provides joy for Christians, but it's just not any church. It is a united church. In fact, when the church becomes divided and begins to bicker and fight, then that wellspring of joy, I think, dries up. In fact, it is poisoned, and rather than joy, it brings misery. In fact, if you look back in chapter 2 of the book of Philippians, remember when Paul said in verse 2 that he wants them to complete his joy, complete my joy. How? By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. You see the connection that Paul is drawing is, I find joy in the church when it is united. When it is loving each other. Which is why the Philippian church was troubling Paul. Because they were struggling in this area of unity as we see in chapter 4 and verse 2. As Paul says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now we're not sure what problems these ladies are having, but we're sure that they're the ones causing it. In fact, we know that this letter was to be read out loud to the gathered congregation. How would you like that when the apostle names you? Right? If you were dozing off, you would have jumped awake at that time as everybody now is looking at odious and stinky as how they're just stinking up the church over their quarrel. Right? And how the problems that they're having. And not only is it impacting them, but it's impacting all of the church as they face this disunity. And what's interesting is that these aren't just um, people perhaps on the outside. These are core members of the church. For you see in verse 3, he says, These are women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. He actually uses terms that would describe the gladiator battles. These are literally fought, they fought side by side with me to proclaim the good news to this pagan world. And now they're fighting. They're bickering. Most likely they're not bickering over theological matters. Heresy is not the issue, otherwise Paul would have settled that, wouldn't he? They're probably not bickering over immorality. Paul would have settled that as well. We're left to think that they just simply can't get along with each other. 
Maybe someone snubbed another or offended them or, or um, maybe they're jealous of each other. Maybe it's become so intense that they couldn't be in the same room or if they were, they'd kind of sit on their own sides of the room and maybe they're marshalling their own, their own army against the other and trying to get people in on their side. And in doing so, in this division, in this quarreling, the church is in danger. It's in danger from being able to do what the church is supposed to do. In fact, I don't know if you remember kind of the core verse in the book of Philippians. Philippians was chapter 1 and verse 27 when he says, Only this, let the manner of your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. How can we live worthy of the gospel of Christ? He goes on by saying, striving side by side with one mind, standing firm in one love. They're in danger of not being able to fulfill the mission of the church, and they're in danger also of destroying the joy that should be gathered from the church. You understand this, I think, from experience. It's hard to have joy in the midst of conflict. Whether that be in a workplace, or a marriage, or a neighborhood, or a church. It poisons the joy that we should receive from each other. Unfortunately, many of us have experienced this, at least heard of this. The church becomes a battlefield, and there are casualties to the left and to the right. And recognizing this danger, Paul begins to plead with them. You see that in verse 2? I entreat you, Odie. Maybe your translation says, I plead with Yodia, and I plead with Sintiki. It's, I just think that's so wonderful. He's not pulling rank on them, is he? He's not kind of throwing away around his apostolic authority. He's not barking orders. He is humble with these women. Even when they're being silly and most likely sinful, he is even gentle to them, with them, even at that time. In fact, do you notice how fair he's being? He almost creates, he creates, he does, this awkward sentence of verse 2, when he says, not I plead with Yodia and Sintiki, he actually repeats himself. I plead with Yodia and I plead with Sintiki to agree in the Lord. He wants to be fair. He wants to to love both of these women and he commends that they might get help for verse 3 says, yes I ask you also true companion to help these women. He's calling in a a third party. We don't know who he's referring to. Some speculate that he was the one who was to read this letter to come and to, to bless them and to help them. Sometimes when these fractions get so entrenched People need help to see things from other people's perspective. They, they need help to be challenged, to be, have a Christian attitude. They need help to be informed how, how this is not simply a personal issue. It's actually harming the church. They need help. And the church in Corinth, which is even more divided than the church in Philippi, Paul would say, is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? He says the church should come and help. This is a, one of the roles of the church, that the church comes and tries to mediate these things in order for them to agree in the Lord, as he says in verse 2. Literally, he wants them to be like-minded, come together, stop fighting each other, for they're not each other's enemies. The devil, of course, loves to turn us on one another. Um, and he does, when he does, he makes us miserable, destroys our witness. Paul says you should agree in the Lord, you should be united. I, I think if we're all in the Lord, the church should be a place in which we give grace, isn't it? This grace that brings us together. And why are you here this morning? Because you, sinner, have received grace. And I, a sinner, have received grace. And therefore, should we not be the most gracious people in the world to give grace to one another when they, when they snub us or offend us? This is what the church is supposed to be. 
That's one of the reasons why we're rewriting our church covenant. That it might say things like, we will be slow to take offense and ready to seek reconciliation. We will humbly and gently confront one another, willingly receive correction, and eagerly uh, work for the unity of the Spirit and the bonds of peace. We want to be a church like that. And so I wonder, is there anyone here that you need to reconcile with? Is there any bitterness in your heart? Any absence of grace? Perhaps you need help. Perhaps you need someone wise to come alongside and to be a blessing. One source of help is found in the last part of verse 3. You notice what he he describes these women, and not just these women, but this man named Clement. And he says, the rest of my fellow workers. He says their names are written in the book of life. Throughout Scripture, there's this book in heaven. And the Bible talks about this book often. And it says that in this book, God keeps a registry of heaven's citizens. Uh, It's a list of God's children. Daniel would say there's going to be the rescue of everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. John will say that those whose name is written in the book of life, the Lamb's book of life, excuse me, will be vindicated before God. And what he is trying to do is saying, look at this conflict in light of eternal perspective. Consider the fact that that church unity is actually contradicting what God has done. That God has written your name in the book of life. So when I get snubbed or offended or when I snub and offend you, I think you would be right and good for you to say, you know what, my name is in the book of life and so is yours. And God has accepted each of us. Should we therefore not do likewise? In fact, how do you think your name got written in there? Oh, it's because Christ has died for you. Now, Christ has written your name in that book. I think often we, we hold grudges because we forget this, don't we? We hold grudges because we think not of ourselves not as a sinner, but as one who has been sinned against. I'm righteous, you're the sinner. But, but if we first fundamentally understood ourselves as sinners who have received grace, as one who has received God's mercy, that we might might be quick to extend that mercy to one another. Maybe you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. We're delighted that you're here. And we hope that you feel welcome and, and blessed, and you are welcome here anytime. But this, this reference to the book of life, I believe, raises an important reality. The Bible tells us there is this book in heaven in which people's names are written in it. And if you're not a Christian today, your name is not in that book. And you cannot write it in. Only God can. In fact, there are other books in heaven, the Bible speaks of, that you actually write in. And they give an account of your life. They give an account of the way that you have ignored God and gone and done your own thing. And the Bible says one day when we stand before Him, those books will be opened. And it's going to be displayed for us the ways in which we have not pleased God and the ways in which we have earned His judgments. And then the books will be closed. And the Bible says when those books are closed, there shall be no hope. But the wonderful thing is that God is a God of hope. And God gives you hope right now. For Jesus has lived a perfect life. And His book only shows righteousness and innocence and godliness. And yet He was the one who died in order to take upon Himself the punishment that was due for me and for you. And that if you would trust in Him, the one who has been raised from the dead and repent of your sin and bow your knee to Him, God will place your name in that book. I have nothing better to tell you this morning. It is in one way terrible news your name is not in there 
And yet it is, in another way, the greatest that it could be put in there today if you would trust in Christ. The Bible says we find this joy in this united community. Thirdly, we were to find this enduring joy by resolving to rejoice. We're taught this here in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice, the apostle says. This is this command that he has given us to rejoice. It's not the first time that he has told us to rejoice. He told us in chapter 2 and in chapter 3 and now in chapter 4, not once, but twice. I think it's kind of good to hear this because sometimes when we talk about stand firm or endurance, we might think you just got to hang on till the end, right? And Paul says, listen, hang on, brothers and sisters, and I'm going to hang on and we'll just kind of make it to the end. And that's not what he's saying at all. Rather, in this firmness, this endurance, Paul is telling us to rejoice in the Lord. That you need to make this resolution, this determination that I will find my joy in God. This is what Paul has done. Paul, of course, writing this letter here in prison now for four years, uncertain as to what his future will bring. And yet this is the 16th time that he has mentioned joy. He has resolved to be joyful. He told us as much back in chapter 1 in verse 18 after he surveyed his prison. And then even on top of that, that there are people out there slandering him. He says there in verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. I am going to rejoice in God no matter my circumstances. It is what the prophet Habakkuk proclaimed as Butch read for us this morning. Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the yields the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stall. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. We too often link all of our joy onto juicy figs and ripe olives and retirement accounts and good health and all of that is fleeting. Habakkuk says no matter what I get, whether it be abundance or scarcity, as does the Apostle Paul, I am determined to find my joy in him. Understand that this joy, friends, that is commanded to you here in chapter 4 and verse 4 is not something that will come passively upon you. It is something you seek. Fear, sadness, that comes to you. No one tries to feel sad. No one tries to feel fearful. They're hit with it. This joy will never hit you. You must seek it. You must be resolved to pursue it. How can we do so? Well, he tells us in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord. There it is. Look to Jesus. Consider what he did. His birth, his life, his miracles, his teaching, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his throne, his return. Think Actively in the midst of these hardships, who is he? What has he done? You will find strength there. You will find stability there. You will find joy there. And not only what has he done, but what does it mean for me that my sins are forgiven, that I've been declared righteousness, that I've been adopted into God's family, the Holy Spirit lives within me. I am headed to eternity. 
Peter would write to those suffering Christians, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Maybe you could be reminded of what he has saved you from. Of how He has brought you, not where He are headed, but to where He has taken you from. That every sin is a monster that could have enslaved you for all eternity. The psalmist understood this as he declared in Psalm 40, He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, and gave me a firm place to stand. Note this, He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Maybe you can remember as you rejoice in the Lord that your name too is in that book of life. There's this wonderful story in Luke chapter 10 when Jesus had sent out the apostles on this preaching ministry. And it was this incredibly powerful ministry. And they were out sharing the gospel and proclaiming the good news. And even more than that, they were having power, this powerful ministry. And they were doing miracles and casting out demons. And they all get together. And in Luke 10, they all begin to celebrate what happened. And they're kind of high-fiving each other and smacking each other on the bum. And, and they're saying, you know, way to go. And you did a good job. And, and you remember Andrew when that demon was like yelling at you. And you said, get out of there in the name of Jesus Christ and remember and they're just kind of celebrating and, and having this wonderful time and Jesus comes up to them and says do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you but rejoice that your names you know what it is are written in heaven as wonderful as that is, that will come and that will go. Your joy ought to be found in the fact that God, think about this, Christian. God has put your name in his book. I don't care what hits you today. That name will never been taken out. He has placed it there. Is that not a place for us to rejoice? We need to think about these things and ponder them and consider them. I think this is what Paul and Silas must have been doing in that prison with their feet in stocks and their backs lacerated and the prison door shut and the mourning bringing uncertainty. You know what was certain to them in the midst of all that? That their God was in control. And their God was good and is good because he put Christ on the cross for them sinners. And so they were singing and praying there, not because they had some revelation of the fortune that would come upon them in just minutes. They were singing and praying in joy based upon their knowledge that God is good and sovereign even in the hard times. Which does not mean we ignore the pain. It does not mean that we deny reality. But rather in the midst of pain, staring dead into the face of the difficulty, we are able to declare, I trust in my God. And that I know He will never give me anything I cannot bear. And I know He works all things for my good. And even if He does not answer my prayer, I will trust in Him. For He does not owe me an explanation. He does not owe me a play-by-play. He does not owe me my approval. I will bow my knee knowing that Christ has died, Christ has been raised, and I belong to Him today and forevermore. There's where you'll find your joy. But you must consider it. It cannot just be put away in a file cabinet in your mind and all you think about is the hardship in which you're facing. If all Paul did and Silas is looking at their feet and stocks or the lacerated back or the closed doors, if that's all they consider, there would be no joy in that prison. They ponder who God is and what He is doing. 
This is not something that only these apostles did. It's something that that great pioneering missionary Char- uh, Hudson Taylor did. He took that gospel there into China. After 12 years of marriage, he lost his wife, Maria. He wrote to his mother, From my inmost soul I delight in the knowledge that God does or deliberately permits all things and causes all things to work together for good to those who love him. He and he only knew what my dear wife was to me. He knew how the light of my eyes and the joy of my heart were in her. But he saw that it was good to take her, good indeed for her, and not less good for me who must now toil and suffer alone. Yet not alone, for God is nearer to me than ever. And now I have to tell him all my sorrows and difficulties, as I used to tell my dear Maria, to walk a little less by feeling, a little less by sight, a little more by faith. Taylor would write to a missionary friend, My eyes flow with tears of mingled joy and sorrow. When I think of my loss, my heart, which is close to breaking, at the same time rises in thankfulness to him who spared her such sorrow and made her so unspeakably happy. My tears, in fact, are more tears of joy than of grief. But most of all, I have joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ in his works, in his ways, in his providence, in himself. Notice two things about this man's writings. One, his stable, enduring joy does not mean he does not get to weep. He feels sorrow and pain. And yet that stable, enduring joy is what he chooses to fight for. It's what he chooses to believe. He chooses to remember, as he said, what Christ is and what he has done and what he is doing and how he is ruling in my life. He finds his delight in him, which is what Christians do. They find their delight in him. Maybe you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. Please understand that when one becomes a Christian, it is not simply they are choosing Jesus. They begin to cherish Jesus. There must be a love for him. As one pastor has said, Conversion is the creation of new desires, not new duties, new delights, not new deeds, new treasures, not new tasks. For us who follow Christ here, I would encourage you to spend time with Him, to go to Him. I know it's easier to have a list and it's, ha- it's easier to have the ABCs of how to have joy in the midst of difficult times. This is how the world works, isn't it? They want to deal with all the symptoms. And they look at the symptoms and they'll give you some pills for that or tell you to eat well and sleep well and do some yoga or whatever it is. And then you go to therapy and all that is taking care of the symptoms. If there is fire in your house, I would recommend that you not simply wave away the smoke, but that you go find where the fire is. And the fire is, do you trust God in the midst of hardship? That's the root of the problem. Do we trust? Am I willing to follow him in the midst of hardships? Go to Christ this week. Believe what he has done. Believe what you know to be true. Praise him in the midst of it. I I think anxiety and fear and sadness run away when confronted by the active praise of God. Well, lastly and quickly, we find our enduring joy in learning to be gentle. Notice verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. That word evidently is hard to translate. Reasonableness. I, I think I saw a dozen different translations of that one word. And so if you have an, a different translation, you probably have a different word. Some call it meekness. Some call it graciousness. Uh, I like the word gentleness. I, I think it's a beautiful picture. 
That what he wants us to be is people who are kind and gentle to those who are not that to you. It is the opposite of self-seeking and wanting retribution. It's what Jesus has shown us. Even in chapter 2 of Philippians, that he who was in the form of God did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be seized. But he served us and was gentle. We are to have this mind in us, Paul says, the mind of Christ. Be gentle. I think this is a good word for us because we do not live in a gentle land. We live in a harsh world. A a, a place where people are quick to get angry when they're not only wronged, but they're inconvenienced. I was in the parking lot of Home Depot with my two two of my sons on Saturday, and evidently I was not doing a good job behind the wheel. Because there was a man who let me know. I didn't know what I'm... and And my sons were like, what is going on? Why is he so upset? We live in that world, don't we? You encounter anger, won't you, and harshness on your way home, perhaps, or in the workplace, or sometimes even, unfortunately, in our families. We're so quick to defend ourselves. We're so quick to let others know that we have been mistreated. Even though the Bible, for instance, in our home says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And the same is true for the wives. For First Peter says, let your adorning be with imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight very precious. Paul says, be gentle. Forbear with one another. Jesus says, turn the other cheek. If someone wants your tunic, let them have your cloak as well. Value your, relation, your relationships above your rights. Absorb the offense. Let it go. And if you do, I think you will find joy to be much more frequently in your possession. I think harsh people are rarely joyful people. Angry people. It's hard to be angry and joyful at the same time, isn't it? I I think, therefore, he says, be joyful as we seek this stability. Gentleness, by the way, just not to one another here in this room, but to everyone. You notice what he says there. Let your reasonableness or your gentleness be known to, who is it? Everyone. Right? Even those who make your life miserable. Be gentle to them. Be known for this. Let it be known that you are gentle. Now, this will be a good experiment. If you this week, you went and talked to your non-Christian friends and said, Hey, real quick, just write down ten characteristics of Christians. Right? And we all did that. Right? We all found a friend. Give me ten characteristics of Christians. How many times would the word gentle make that list? I wonder. How many times gracious or meek? I think quite, quite often, rather, what we would see is angry, calculating, shouting. I think we perhaps would do well to live a life that would remind our culture that our hope and our joy is not found in political outcomes or court decisions or comfort and security, but it is found in the Lord. This is what a Romanian pastor who lived under the communist occupation experienced. He and his six children, when the police barged into his house to arrest him, he immediately said to the police officers, you are the answer to our prayers. We just read Psalm 23 in which God says he will prepare a table in the presence of his enemies. We had a table, but no enemies. (laughs) Now you have come. Please eat whatever you like. Come sit and eat with us. At which the officer said, you are crazy. We will take you to prison and you will die there. And with great gentleness, this man of God said, We read about that today too. Though I pass through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. The officer said, Everyone fears death. I have seen it on their faces. 
The pastor responded, The shadow of dog cannot bite you, nor can the shadow of death kill us. You may be able to kill our bodies or put us in prison, but ultimately nothing can happen to us, for we are in Christ, and if we die, we will simply go to his world. Let your gentleness be known to all. What do you want to be known for? Athletic ability, good looks, intelligence, quick wit, sense of humor, or maybe we'll sanctify the list, maybe devotion to prayer, a godly husband, a faithful child, a great Bible teacher, an excellent preacher. What do you want to be known for? Let your gentleness be known to all. Why? Not because we're weak and fearful, but because he tells us the Lord is near. You see that in verse 5? The Lord is at hand. We're not sure what Paul means by that. He could mean that he's talking about time, that he's near, that he'll soon come. Or he could be talking about space or proximity, that the Lord is near and that he is with you. I think both are true. I know both are true. That he will soon come and that he is with us. He is, in fact, nearer to us than when I first began this message. And he also is continually with us. This should be a motivation for us to be gentle and rejoicing and uniting. That we are not left by ourselves. That he is with us now. He is with us now. Right now. He is with you. Closer than your, even your breath. He is with you. Therefore, set aside anxiety and fear. Stand firm and rejoice. James said to suffering Christians, Be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. The Lord is near, Christian. He walks with you in trouble. Therefore, rejoice in the Lord. The Lord is near, Christian. He will right every wrong when He returns. Therefore, be gentle and rejoice in the Lord. The Lord is near, Christian. Therefore, He will take you and all of the saints in eternal life. Therefore, be reconciled and rejoice in the Lord. The Lord is near, and when He comes, He shall bring blessings untold. Therefore, stand firm and rejoice in the Lord. Father, it is our prayer that we would know the nearness of Christ that we would know and believe that He is coming soon, and yet at the same time He is with us now and shall never leave us nor forsake us. He is with us forever. Help us, therefore, to be enduring, stable people, not buffeted by circumstance and trial, for our trust is in Him, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.